Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next in our series of sustainability podcasts. Uh, my name is Michael Bennett. I'm a legal director here at uh, Shoesmiths in the construction team. And I'm joined today by Simon Needle, the principal arboriculturalist and ecologist with Birmingham City Council. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for having me here today. Well, we're, we're here today to discuss the, the City of Nature plans. Uh, quite an exciting development that's uh, uh, in its early stages at the moment, I think it's fair to say, but planned to continue for many years to come. Uh, would you like to just talk us through exactly what the City of Nature plan is and uh, and how it's being brought together? Okay, yeah. So initially, the the uh, we were looking at renewing the the big city plan for Birmingham City Council, which was looking at the development plan within the sort of the core area, um, and and looking at how what we needed to bring forward in terms of sort of our vision for the city. So within that, we had a number of different chapters, and one of those was the City of Nature which was looking at how we can bring more elements of the natural environment into the city centre. At the same time, we also had a, a, a project running within our park section, which was looking really citywide, uh, which was called, the, which was under a banner called the Future Parks Accelerator, and originally Naturally Birmingham as well as a sort of subtitle. And that was looking at a number of factors, one of which was around how we are going to continue to provide green space going forward into the future we know that you know a lot of organizations are finding, facing financial pressures so how can we continue to deliver that in a sustainable manner are there options for sustainable finance around there but then also looking at who else benefits from these spaces and who else could perhaps contribute to helping manage and upkeep these whether that be financially contribute or through volunteering and time and engagement so within there there was a number of strands which was around um access to green space so how many people have actually have access to quality green space within say 400 meters of their house looking at education so how well are children being engaged with the natural environment um, and what can be done to further enhance and and i suppose encourage schools to use these green spaces that we have uh, getting out and about getting people active so you know there's a lot of people out there who don't necessarily undertake you know, the sort of recommended amounts of daily exercise, either because they, they're maybe disinclined to, they don't necessarily think about the spaces that they can go into, or they feel dissuaded from entering some of those parks because of perceived or, or real social and cultural issues. So that was the other bit. And the, the, the other section of that then was around, I suppose, climate and environment and what's the quality of that space? Is it benefiting the natural, is it providing biodiversity benefits? So is it providing a good home for the birds, the bees, the butterflies, the other animals and stuff that are around there, the plant species that are that give us ecosystem services. So provide air cooling, air cleaning, water interception. I suppose having these two strands running together, they've converged now. So actually we've, what we've got now is just one city of nature plan, uh, which is looking at how we're going to move forward and deliver the sort of the plant, try and start to deliver on the planning side of things over the next 25 years. Now, I know that seems like a long time, but when you consider the size of the city of Birmingham and how many green spaces we have, how many more we need, how much more investment we need, and that it sort of gives a, you know, I suppose it's a reasonable time scale. It also fits in with the, at the time, the government's white paper, the natural environment paper, which is a 25 year plan as well. So we can see there's that sort of shift over that time. As you rightly say, it's it, it's such a big city to deal with. I know from having read the plan, there's something like about 600 green spaces within the city at the moment, with another 400 planned. I mean, that that's a huge increase, or a two-thirds increase. Mm -hmm. But um, as has been shown so so much, particularly over the pandemic, uh, 
the, the physical and mental health uh, benefits to having access to these spaces before you even consider the, the biodiversity mm -hmm. and ecological aspects mm -hmm. has become so critical within <clears throat> within society. Um, and what you, you mentioned that uh, there were several stages and phases to the plan and several things being looked at, particularly through planning uh, and other things. What, what are these key threads that are running through the plan as to how this is going to be delivered? Okay, so uh, at the moment we've we've got a, a pilot that's uh, being looked at. We've, we've, what we've done is we've taken the city, we've looked at it uh, at geographically, we've divided it down into the individual wards. So that's the, the, the areas that um, I suppose there are smaller elected member areas for the city. And then we've looked at a number of factors. So we've looked at the accessibility to the green space. We've looked at things like the amount of years life lost, the amount of water interception that's happening, or is there a flooding issue? Is there an air cooling issue? Is there an urban heat island issue? And we've, we've put together what we call an environmental justice map. So it's showing where people have good equity of access to green space, good equity of provision of ecosystem services. And we've also it also shows us the areas where there's not sufficient equity of, of that. The, the pilot we're going to be doing is focusing on uh, five wards initially, uh, Borsden Highgate being one of the ones that's sort of more central to the city. So within there, we're looking at what can we do to engage people more with the with the park spaces. So, so we've got people who are working on engaging with the community, looking to try and form friends of parks groups, looking at other community groups, trying to encourage them to come into the into those park spaces, maybe help out with some of the additional management in those spaces, get them engaged in uh, nature conservation activities. Can they help improve biodiversity within that space? So that hits another target. And of course, in doing that, that also provides healthy activities as well at the same time. Uh, the, other, the other aspect then is about trying to engage the schools within those spaces as well. So trying to deliver activities and, and create those links between the schools and, and the um, and the park space and the community group. So we've got a bit more community cohesion in there. And in looking at those park spaces, we're going to have to look at the quality and the functionality of those spaces as well. Do they provide all of the things that we could deliver within there? So, you know, if we go into one of the spaces and it's short mown amenity grass, okay, yes, it's a space. It's some place that people can go, but is it mentally stimulating? Is it does it provide biodiversity benefit? So if not, what can we amend? What can we do or introduce into those spaces that's going to improve that? So the variety of types of habitat or types of you know plants and trees and stuff that are in there is going to make a big difference to people's health and mental health and well-being. Seeing a, a more green surrounding, so we're looking at how much tree cover there is there, what types of trees are there. Can we introduce more trees into that space? If it's particularly low on canopy cover across the ward, you know, it's a real good way of starting to produce a, some localised cooling effects. Um, so, yeah, if we look, can we, can we put some more trees in there? And then if we are putting more trees, can we introduce some other sorts of interests? So if we've got uh, things like London Plains or limes in there, can we introduce things like flowering cherries or perhaps, not, you know, more in, or interesting or unusual species like Paulonia, which have big spikes of purple flowers on them or handkerchief trees, there's a whole range of trees that we could we could use. And that also ties into other aspects of our urban forest master plan that we, we have. So there's, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of trying to engage those people. We, yes, it's primarily looking at parks at the moment, but we know, and this is where the planning side thing, part of it comes in, is then we, if we're improving those parks, how do we improve the connectivity from where people live to those spaces? So as we're seeing planning applications coming in, can we 
lever in planning gain? Can we help influence the development of these sites by creating green streets that link these residential areas through to the parks? Can we incorporate you know, floodwater attenuation, so rain gardens into the streets? Can we encourage them to put green roofs on tops of the buildings? So actually where we've got a shortage of open space for people to go and visit, like a park, can we supplement that by providing these people providing people who are in sort of the more medium density to high density residential blocks can we get you know green roofs on there whether they be for biodiversity or whether they be for amenity recreation so rooftop gardens and stuff that all adds to that matrix of green space i mean ultimately for me it'd be great to create a city in a park rather than having a park in a city i suppose maybe that's the sort of feel that perhaps we should be saying we want to try and move towards yeah, I think one of, the, one of the key takeaways from that is it's not just about having access to something that's green. It's more than that. It's you know, something, as you say, stimulating. You know, For those of you who are familiar with uh, Pipe Hayes, there's obviously a very large park in Pipe Hayes, which more often than not is actually covered by a, a, a fair of some kind. Even with that, it, it's still rated as being uh, very poor on the, on the diversity scale that's been drawn up. I assume that's probably because it is very much just a grassed area. And while it's a very large grassed area, uh, it doesn't have those those other benefits, if you will. So it, it, it creates that contrast between that and, say, uh, somewhere more like uh, Nietzsche's, where it's much higher density housing. You do have some green spaces spread around, but they're much harder to access, possibly. So how are the different <laughs> approaches being adopted between those to develop the, the benefits within each? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good point. And I think, you know, this is the thing that it, it's not necessarily going to be a, a a one size option fits all, I think, you know, so, you know, in terms of environmental justice, there's that we've already mentioned, there's, there's a number of strands there. And I suppose it's understanding what is the aspect that is causing that to show up as a particularly poor area for, for environmental justice. So, Although you were saying there for Pi Pace, you've got a large park space, but actually what are the other factors that it's it's being uh, impacted by? So, you know, if we look at a map of the city, of the whole city uh, and think about flooding, for example, so we'll see that actually, you know, the river network runs across the city. We've got all these tributaries that are going through. So some areas might be particularly heavily impacted by urban flooding. They may have green space around there, but, you know, there may be other factors uh, coming to play there. So there's there's work maybe on the river corridors that we're having to do. I think if we look at urban heat island though, actually there's quite a focus over that north and east of the city. And some of that is down to do with where industry is placed in the city. So, you know, you go to just the north of the city centre, we've got, you know, through Erdington, we've got quite a lot of, inf- uh, you know, industry there. And the prevailing wind comes from the southwest as well. So actually, although the urban, that heat is not necessarily produced over, say, Pipeys, the warm air is being pushed up and out towards that north and east of the city. So those sort of impacts are, are working on the people there. So how what can we do? So sometimes actually these interventions might not need to come actually in the wall, but actually outside of those areas. So it's it's difficult. But even then, you know, creating some, you know, maybe upping the tree cover, upping some of the interception barriers between there, you know, the if the, the, the the pollution that might come from the M6, say, up as well into there. You know, creating some dispersal barriers and roughness of air by introducing tree canopy helps dissipate those pollutants. And so therefore, that's having an impact on the health, a positive impact on the health and well-being of the people. So that might be all that's needed to, to bring that scoring up. 
And the, the, the pilot is, is due to run for give or take about the next four and a half, five years. I appreciate it's very early stages at the moment. It started earlier this year. <clears throat> well, how is the pilot progressing at the moment and, and what sort of steps are being taken in these wards at the moment? The, the Future Parks Accelerator Programme started just a little around two years ago now. Uh, it's just had some continuation funding now to, to implement. So the first sort of 12 to 18 months has been looking at drawing up all this information, looking at what needs to happen. And now it's, like I say, it's going into this implementation stage. So the, the, the first part of that pilot is going to be happening over the next 18 months. So we're looking at, and this is where I've got my five from earlier, there's the five sort of five parks within boards in Highgate that we're looking at those because this is probably the most deprived ward in this in the city in terms of environmental justice uh, but it's also one of the areas that is also seeing perhaps the most potential for residential growth as well so we need to start tackling those those factors factors now so over the next 18 months we're going to be working in highgate park garrison lane kingston hill um and, and a few other parks like i say trying to engage the community there but actually doing physical interventions on the ground so we'll be looking at planting more trees, we'll be looking at doing some grassland uh, management, so introducing wildflowers, engaging the community in that in that process. We may even see if there's, if there's a flooding issue, we might try and introduce some water features there as well, so we can take capture some of that surface water flood runoff. Like I say, working with the, with the community groups and, and seeing how they use the park, how do they want to use the park, and seeing whether we can actually amend some of the existing management, because, you know, if we want to do stormwater interception, one of the easiest things we can do is actually stop mowing the grass because the water just runs off short mowing grass. You know, it doesn't spend much time, it doesn't get time to percolate in the ground. So, but if we leave the grass to grow a little bit in some places, it's going to slow that flow down. So anybody who's been seeing, you know, uh, work around rivers and flooding will have probably heard the term slow the flow. And that applies just as much to, to grassland areas as it does to, you know, river and stream areas where we're looking at trying to, you know, put woody debris in or, you know, actually slow that flow down and, hold back some of that water so we don't create flooding issues further down. You might want to call them micro-interventions, but actually on a bigger scale, they'll start to build up. And, uh, you know, this is where we start to see how this aligns then with the new uh, legislation coming in from government around biodiversity net gain uh, and the requirement for 10% net gain on on all develop well, on most developments coming forward. So this is where we can start to show, well, actually, this is where business might be able to come in and engage with these spaces. And we can use our spaces to offer the opportunities for to deliver biodiversity net gain in spaces where people can be using them and benefiting from it. And we'll come back to business in a minute, as obviously that's uh, that's quite an important part of this is getting the private sector involved as well. How are you finding engagement with the local community? Because as you say, so much of this is about how they want to use the space and how they are currently using the space and what needs to change. Uh, I know within the plan there's there's talk of the green champions in the local mm -hmm. areas to help with this. Mm -hmm. How are you finding both appointing those green champions and the general community engagement? Uh, I think it's been very interesting that you know you can go and stand in a park and try and you know talk to people who are using the space, but how do you reach those people who don't use the spaces at all? And those are the ones really that we need to be, be need to be reaching. And and again, you know, you, you don't really want to be talking about necessarily the benefits of. COVID pandemic, but actually having to move the consultation online actually managed to reach out to people who wouldn't necessarily come to a consultation session because they could do this from their own home, because they could join online. 
I think we actually managed to reach quite a lot more people than we would have done had we done a face-to-face consultation session. Uh, and so that's brought up some interesting you know, points and in, engage new groups. And from those, yeah, they're, they're starting to build a, a, you know, a group of green champions. We're finding those individuals out there. There are still hard to reach groups out there. And I think that is going to take, you know, on the ground, you know, walking around and, and looking for them and, and, you know, trawling the internet. But, you know, the whole, the whole push through, like I say, the, the sort of the Zoom teams type meetings and the social media reach they've been getting, uh, you know, having people, actively you know promote the work and highlight the work of other groups has, has drawn a lot more people in sustaining that i think is going to be you know a key thing and i think that's where you know we need some i suppose this will be the, the sort of the core of the green champions network you know those who can keep going and and spinning the plate you know we've, we've said this before now working with community groups is always a bit like plate spinning there's loads of them who do fantastic work out there but actually you don't need to engage with them a lot, but you do need to ha- you know, keep in touch with them. And it's a bit like, I said, it's a plate spinner. You go along, you have a little bit of engagement with them and move along. So, because there's, like you said earlier, you know, there's 600 odd spaces, you know, green spaces in Birmingham at the moment. There's around 130, 140 friends groups. There's God knows how many more community groups at large now. There's all the litter picking groups that have started up over the COVID pandemic who wanted to get out and do something for their environment. So there's a huge amount of people out there. It's trying to just build up enough momentum that it sustains itself I think going forward but I think we're going to be doing okay on this yeah you mentioned the consultation what were the sort of common threads and themes that came out of that consultation as to how people want these green spaces to to be made available I mean I've encountered this sort of thing through my my work as an ecologist and I can see this relating out to other groups as well so when when we're looking at habitat management for example uh, how I might see a habitat needs to be managed might be different from how another person sees it should be managed so if i want to see it being managed for 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 birds somebody else might say they want to see it managed for butterflies but the management's two different things and we do see that with with community groups so those that want you know very biodiverse spaces lots of wildflowers everywhere they don't want to see us cutting the grass at all you know they don't want to it's a, you know we were in no mow may no mow may as we are now and they just think we shouldn't be mowing at all you know all year round but of course we have to balance that against the people who want to use it for sporting use for family use for bike riding for football you know you know those sorts of things it's interesting to try and see what people want from those spaces and i think this is the you know we all need to have this understanding that these have to be multifunctional spaces that you know they are going to have to deliver on a lot of aspects so yes, it was interesting working through the consultation. So there were sessions that were particularly working with uh, teachers and education groups, looking to see what were, what was working with them, why they were perhaps why they weren't using green spaces, what were the barriers to using those spaces. Sometimes it was just about you know actually having somebody who they can link up with who actually understands that space because you know best with the world we can't all be experts at everything and having somebody who can come and tell you about the space help lead a group is is crucial to you know getting out into those spaces and you know i mean i come from a background of having been in the ranger service where i was doing environmental education you know day after day and, and i know how important having that person with the local context and local knowledge can be in engaging other people with the schools we you know we engage with people who are looking at sporting activities and so they go you know well we want more we might want more five-a-side football pitches or 5G pitches or, you know, why have we not got uh, 
you know, some form of, you know, maybe a, a the sort of like the gym equipment, you know, in, in a park. But I suppose it's, you know, if money was no object, I think, yeah, you'd be able to deliver on those. Mm. But it is, it is, it's also going to be about balance and, and sort of just trying to pick up those elements. I think the big thing probably putting a lot of people off, though, is, is their perception of parks. A, they don't, sometimes they don't know where their parks are. They don't know how to get to them. And they have a perception that actually these are no-go areas, maybe. But most of the time, that's not the case. It is, it is a, you know, I suppose a false perception. I'm not saying that there aren't issues in parks out there because we know that there are areas with antisocial behaviour, but actually on the whole, uh, and I think it's just, you know, once people have taken that step over, they've come into the park, they've understood what's there, it's this thing of, you know, overcoming the fear of the unknown, I suppose, not knowing what's in the park, not knowing what to expect. Trying to deal with that as well has been part of the work. So within the City Council web pages, we're looking to put new information about these park spaces out on there, but also put a little video clip, so like a, a drone view of the park, so people can see before they go what, what sort of type of environment they're going to expect. You mentioned the, the sort of no-go area idea of some of the, some of the parks. Certainly, uh, I know quite a few people, particularly around dusk or... Uh, as it starts to get dark, are quite uncomfortable in, in, in parks, in large open areas. How is the council looking to tackle that side of things? Is that, Are they working with the police to to consider it or the ranger service? Uh, well, what steps are being taken? Yeah, most most of these issues, you know, they, they occur because, you know, we, we don't necessarily have uh, sufficient responsible use of the spaces. So... Yeah, it's building that momentum of responsible use of a space, so encouraging everyday users to come into there. The more regular activity there is, the less likely there is for there to be that type of antisocial behaviour. But yeah, there, there has we have been engaging with you know the, the police through this process, looking at what they can do, trying to encourage. In fact, actually trying to encourage them to come into some of these spaces in some instances. I mean, you know, again, they're another uh, you know organisation that are under pressure. They have so many things that they have to deal with, you know, although we do see them out there, you know, some of the police who are out there on, on push bikes are able to go into these spaces a lot better, you know, but if sometimes they're confined, you know, they're, they're strapped for staff, it is a bit more of a drive-by and so these spaces can become a bit more closed off. But looking at how we have the entrance spaces, how welcoming are they? Can they see into those spaces? You know, that's that'd be part of that. I think the other thing that, you know, we get a lot of requests for, um, in parks to sort of try and combat this is, is lighting. And I think it's, it's, for me, it's a bit of a controversial issue because while I think there's a, a time and a place for lighting, we also need to consider the impacts on biodiversity as well. So sometimes a high luminescence of lighting is, is appropriate, maybe at the entrances, maybe on key routes, but outside of those, we need to think about more about that natural environment. So, but I think like I said, go, going back, if we were encouraging more responsible usage throughout the day, then actually I think we start to bring back ownership of those spaces back to the wider population and sort of, you know, I'm not saying we necessarily force that unwanted activity elsewhere, but hopefully, we, you know, we can combat that. I'm sorry to say that's all we have time for today. Uh, please join me for the conclusion of our conversation uh, in part two. And thank you very much for listening.